when I started sales, I didn't know what B2B meant. And then I get immersed in product training, and then I go off and make 100 calls of what am I going to talk about? The thing that I'm confident on, which is my product. And then we beat sellers over the head and say, why are you talking about the product? In my opinion, I think it is the single most destructive thing ever. I had a manager that was so hard on me, but it was the best experience because I was not allowed to bring a deal to review unless I could tell him what did that company sell, how did they sell it, mm -hmm. and who did they sell it to? If I couldn't give him that, he said, you don't know enough about the customer to be even in a deal process. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jen Allen Knuth. And Jen is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Jen is head of community growth at Lavender, previously the chief evangelist at Challenger. My other guest today for this roundtable discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing your win rates are my friend Bridget Gleason, who many of you may recognize as my frequent co-host on my previous podcast. Bridget is a multi-time successful CRO and head of sales and is currently chief revenue officer at Util. Also joining us is David J.P. Fisher, or DFish as he goes by. And David is sales author and sales advisor and currently global social selling lead senior sales enablement program manager at SAS. A few quick items of business before we jump into today's discussion. First, if you're interested in getting even more actionable ideas about how to elevate your sales effectiveness, then please subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday, and each week you'll join more than 50,000 top sellers who receive one actionable tip to accelerate their win rates. To subscribe, simply go to my website, andypaul.com, and second, enrollment's now open for the next session of my Buyer Experience Bootcamp starting September 12th. Now, this bootcamp is my five-week group coaching program that teaches sellers how to elevate their win rates through a human-first approach to selling that delivers the differentiated buying experience that stands out in the minds of buyers. How you sell is how you win. For more information to grab your seat in this class, go to andypaul.com bootcamp, andypaul.com bootcamp. Okay, if you're ready, Let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone, to this next episode of the Win Rate Podcast. And gosh, I'm so excited. By, oh, I say that every week. I say every week that I'm so excited. And then I also say, I say that every week. So anyway, I'm <laughs> just repeating myself. I have three friends on the show today. Bridget Gleason, David Fisher, D. Fish, as, as I call him, and I think others do, and Jen Allen, who I have to add the noose on now, right? So it's actually Knuth. Oh, Knuth. I, pronounce I, I pronounced K. it Knuth for like the first six months I dated my husband. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when did you get married? I got married in March. Wow, Freshly. congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Yeah, congratulations. Nice. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was watching a cop show the other day and somebody standing up to give a toast and at a wedding and saying, this is the best life sentence you can get. So... Oh. Right. Oh, For those of us who have married more than once, we're practicing at that. So, so anyway, I just want to spend a few minutes to have people quickly introduce themselves. Jen, we'll start with you. Yeah, Jen Allen Knuth. I recently, back in December, left my 18-year career with CEB Gartner Challenger Sales Company, and I moved to the dark side. I went from sales to marketing. So I'm heading up community growth at a company called Lavender, which is an AI email coaching tool. Yep. Yeah, I think. A lot of people are going to be familiar with that. Uh, Bridget? So I'm Bridget Gleason. I'm a CRO at a company called Util. And as Andy 
anybody who's listened to Andy has probably heard me at some point because <laughs> how many have I been on now? 130, something like that. Yeah. 130. So you may get some repeats, but I really love the early stage startups, getting them off the ground and all the messiness that's associated. And somebody said to me recently, any startup is somewhere between a hot mess and a dumpster fire. And you just always want to make sure you're closer to the hot mess than the dumpster fire. <laughs> so, and I find that's about true. So, you know, win rates and effectiveness are things that you just have to continually drive for and work on, but it's a lot of fun. So how many companies have you been sales leader at? <laughs> more than I can count on one hand. <laughs> Maybe more than two hands, right? No, I don't think more than two hands. I don't think more than two hands. Okay. It's been a lot, though. I, I mean, I can, look up, I can go look at my LinkedIn profile, but yeah, and not, then, you keep it updated. Yes. Okay. I do. All right. I do. Right. That's how she gets the next one. That's how she gets. <laughs> well, no, it's just yeah. She's. I think she's no, in the means. Nobody want. Nobody. Nobody Pretty wants well. the job. It's <laughs> nobody wants the job at the early stage. It's messy. It's hard. You, you can't really lay the tracks. You lay breadcrumbs. And right. you just hope you don't blow away before you start following them. Yeah. Um, how many times have we had the conversation that much this, fun. this, how many times have we had the conversation that this one is your last one? That's good enough. <laughs> the good news and the bad news is I love what I do. I right. love it. I love working. I love it. So it's hard for me to, it's hard, it's hard for me to give it up as long as somebody will hire me. I think and just keep having the conversations and the number will just keep rising. Well, it's a similar conversation <laughs> that I have with my wife about retirement as, as well, which has been going on for a long time. She doesn't want to retire, does she? Well, I'm not encouraging her to. She just keeps talking about, I've had it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. No, just, I know we say that. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, say I know. that. Right. We don't really mean it. We don't yeah, really I know. mean it. If we no. mean it, we'll just do it. Right. All right, we'll David. We'll just do it. Your turn. I'm up. Yeah, David Fisher and uh, all my friends call me D Fish is a nickname I picked up while playing in a band for many years. And if you're listening in today, you're my friend. So feel free to call me D Fish. For 17 years, I ran a sales consultancy called Rockstar Consulting, coaching, training, developing sales programs. Uh, I wrote 12 books, was on many podcasts, including some with Andy, where we just mm -hmm. philosophized about sales and the the ups and downs of the uh, of the profession. And recently also, I don't know if I call it the dark side as Jen would, but took my first real gig 17 years and am now running the global social selling program for SAS. Uh, S S-A-S, not S-A-S. Right. All of SAS, I'm responsible for, you're welcome. And so what's that like? What's it? <laughs> well, let me put myself on the couch. Let's see, it, it was actually, a great transition. It's in case they're listening, great company, great people, great product, <laughs> great solutions. But for me, it's actually been really fun to be on the outside as long as I was where I was trying to convince people to let me come in and, and fix a little something. And as it's hard to, for example, create change, like in a sales organization with a one hour training. And so it's kind of a nice being in a place where they're like, okay, we hired you, make some changes and having the mandate to do that. So we're hopefully not on the dumpster fire end of things with our sales program there, but we're doing all right. Not a startup. Yeah, definitely we're not a startup. I don't think you could. Con yeah, you can't consider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After 50 yeah. years, they don't get to be a, 
Yeah. You can't claim that anymore. Yeah. We'd say check's probably nice as well, right? No, you, you, you get other excuses for things not working, but not being a startup. Yeah. It's not one of them. Exactly. exactly. All right. So we're going to dive into this. Jen, we're going to start with you. Because you've really, you said, you've been on both sides. You're 18 years Gartner, CEB, you know, advising companies of all sizes. But I would say more sort of down funnel than top of funnel, perhaps. And then now you're specifically working more top of company, at least that's focused on top of funnel. So, yeah, we read the stats. And obviously part of the motivation with this podcast is to address this issue of sales effectiveness and win rates. And we see all sorts of data points about you know, certainly the falling quota attainment, falling win rates over the years. So as one of the issues, I just wonder that if you're in an environment, we've certainly seen this in SaaS with sort of low win rates across the board in many of the companies, is the issue that there's just too many sales leads? And people talk yeah. about not enough leads, but I would contend that if your win rates are 20% or 25%, quantity of leads is not the problem. Maybe you have too many. It's an interesting take on it that I candidly had not thought of. I think for me, and this is my first time actually working in SaaS, right? So I sold yeah. to SaaS at Challenger. <laughs> now that I'm in it, right. Bridget, your comment about dumpster fire, hot mess, like I feel that every day. To me, it's more of an issue of what we do with the leads. So one of the things as I've gotten closer into the SaaS space that I've noticed is we're still really tightly held, holding on to the show and tell motion. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I fault people for it. Right. It worked really well in 2021 when everybody had money to spend and things were shiny new objects. But I think as we've seen the market shift, the show and tell motion feels like we're getting great signals. Like people lean in and say, that's really cool. That would be better than what we're doing. That's interesting. And I think it gives these false signs of confidence. But when I look at it, right, you get this volume of leads. Like leads are not a problem at our company right now. We've got a really high volume, a really good spot for that. But even within our own business, sometimes I worry that because people get so excited about the technology and the tool, we match that excitement, right? And we fail to step back and say, maybe I need to understand a little bit better. Is this a true buyer? Is this someone who has enough pain to necessitate making a change and going through the hardships of buying? And so for me, it's, it's less about the number of leads and it's more about what we're doing when we have them and some of the mistakes that we're, we're holding onto from years where sure. we're just running around in better conditions. So are you creating yeah, more rigorous acceptance criteria? I wouldn't say we're creating more rigorous acceptance criteria. Like one of the interesting things we're doing here is we're not doing any MQLs. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying like that makes sense for every business, but if someone, all of our content is ungated because when someone comes in, we want it to be because they've truly raised their hand and said, I, I want to take a closer look at this. Even still, though, you get people who are just curiosity shoppers and they're like, I've seen you everywhere and I just want to take a like poke around. So I think part of what we are still trying to figure out is interrupting that a bit to make sure Mm -hmm. that because we have one AE right now, we need to hire for more, but we've got one. How he spends his time is of utmost importance to our business. And so we've still got to think through a different way of, of fixing that. So what do you experience in that regard, Bridget? Well, first of all, I want to ask Andy. And all of the time I've known you. <laughs> yes. Okay. Here it yeah. comes. I've oh, yeah. never heard you say that the trend is going up. Is is the trend ever up or are we just like spiraling downward to uh, to eventually there will be no win rates? Like there will be zero. Because I never heard you say go up. It's always going down. Well, in are the we- last for what the data points we have out there, admittedly in sales, we, our data points are not as good mm-hmm. as they should be. 
<laughs> but, you know, for instance, the authors of the book Strikingly Different Selling, part of the Franklin Covey organization, commissioned a study of win rates. I think it was a third party did, I think it was 4,500 companies. They surveyed around the world, multiple industry segments, and average win rate on contract value is 100K and higher, which, again, I contend 100K is fairly modest size contract these days. 17%. So Is that bad? You tell me. See, I don't think we know. Right? I mean, just, just statistics, like we've made made a lot of assumptions with organiza- organizations that like, oh, our win rate should be 45%. I mean, you have actually had the conversations, not with me, but with others about how quotas are actually determined. Right? So if you're saying mm-hmm. that we're not hitting quota, you basically picked an arbitrary number based on often how much revenue the company has sure. Sure. been tasked with creating. And by the way, I don't know, 17% might be abysmal, but I would almost challenge other people to tell me why it's not. Like, I, I think we just take these numbers as facts of faith in, in the well, industry. Well, let's, like, let's look at it, though. I think it's a great question to, to push back on this is, yeah, if you're an AE, and you win, let's say, one out of five of your yeah, most qualified opportunities in a period. Is that good? What makes a good? What makes a qualified opportunity? I mean, I, I'm you're calculating somebody that goes to an opportunity that goes to a close, right? So if you have you're working ten opportunities in a period, ten close, you lose eight, two you win. I would say that's. I don't know what you're gonna think. I say that would be low then. At that point, if you're taking somebody through an entire process, if you have not winnowed out, yeah, however you want to call it, disqualified mm-hmm. through discovery, mm-hmm. like if you're going to take somebody, if you're going to take somebody down the, to the altar and only two of them want to marry you at that point, you, you're probably doing something wrong. I don't think we have a standard way that we measure. We don't have standard criteria around what gets accepted and what is considered qualified. That can be very different. And sometimes AEs are pushed to convert something to a qualified lead based on criteria that they may or may not believe is qualified. So that's why I, I asked Jen that question. Excuse me? I'm sorry. That's why I asked Jen that question about acceptance criteria. Because I, yeah. yeah so I, that's, I mean, that's a really good one. The one that I typically look at, and I've always, it, it, except for one time in a very technical sale is by the time when I get to a trial or a POC or whatever, if I let somebody through that gate, it then I need at least 80% that are going to convert. That you're going to win. Yeah. Yeah. But I push that. That's the number I focus on because a lot happens here. There's a lot. Sometimes I'll let stuff in and I'll allow it to be qualified because I, and again, I'm in early stage. Okay, hotness to dumpster fire. There's a lot I need to learn. And the only way we learn them is we have conversations. And I know I'm not going to win a lot of them, but I need the conversations. I need the information. I need to understand how things are changing. I need to understand Mm -hmm. the edge cases to inform. Mm -hmm. So at different points in time, I will loosen criteria or tighten it. Mm-hmm. depending on what I'm trying to achieve at that particular time. So I don't worry so much about the early, but if we're starting to take, when you, when you get to that POC or trial, 
it's got to be 80% or don't let him through that gate. That I feel. And I think the other, we touched on it a little bit. And again, because I've been in technical sales, there's a technical win and there's a business win. And people get enamored with the technical and you can have an amazing product and you can get the technical win, not enough pain to buy anything. And so it sits. And so the other thing I say is you get the business win first and then we'll worry about the technical win. You find out if there's a pain, then we'll go talk about how it's done. Don't do it the other way. Because otherwise, we waste a lot of time on science experiments. And I am not a science teacher. And I'm not an education. And I'm not an academic. And I don't like to educate for free. Right. Jen, you looked like you had a, a comment. No, I, I think that's really fair. I think in a world where there is so much shiny objects, or there are so much shiny objects, I don't know that enough organizations, Bridget, are thinking the way that you are, which is we can make our pipelines look really fat and we can have sure. green everywhere and say, look sure. at all the interests. But if we are just doing all that work just so we can lose late, we're destroying productivity, right? So I would rather lose early, get sellers to seek out the business criteria, make sure that there's enough pain so that instead of doing demos for people that never buy, we can repurpose that time in our outbound efforts or somewhere, any, literally anywhere else that isn't just lighting time on fire. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm, in just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. I agree, and I certainly agree with Bridget, is that you... Yeah, you change the odds as you hopefully as you move them through the funnel. But yeah, again, look at the data that Jen, you've obviously talked to hundreds and thousands of companies in your work. I've talked a lot in what I do. Most don't seem to be doing that. It seems I like to say sort of collective, at least in the SaaS business up until you know, twenty twenty two is yeah, we're low win rates. We're just sort of playing the odds, right? We've got big fat pipelines. Yeah, we know if we're okay, we're gonna win. 20% of them, and if, depending on the size of the pipeline, that could be enough. And why do we worry about effective selling? Because we can sort of collect these customers. You know what else I don't like about the win rate, whatever effective, ineffective selling is if we're not selling effectively, the sales rep that's involved in that is probably not giving the customer a very good experience. And exactly. I just hate that. I think that to me is what really gets me in the gut because I've been through sales experiences that are 
horrible. Or it's terrible. It's offensive. I get angry on the inside and sometimes on the outside, but typically <laughs> on the inside. But I don't want to, I don't want to put our, everybody's time is so precious. And I think we just owe it. It's, it's a sign for me. It's a sign of respect that you run a good process and that if it's not a good fit, you screen them out early. Like, I think that's, it's just, it's our obligation. And it's also just a sign of respect for the person you're working with on the other side. So if we want sales to be a profession that people want to be in and hold up, then we've got to make sure that our sellers are trained and encouraged to operate in that manner. Well, you read my book, obviously I agree with that. But isn't the issue still sort of that most sellers go into the market thinking they're pushing a product as opposed to being focused on helping create this experience to help someone make a decision? I mean, even I think Gartner at the meeting, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to Vegas, but seeing some slides uh, that came out of it recently on the number one, if not the number one criteria for influencing the order, ultimate order, had nothing to do with product or price. It was the experience. And there's other data, other researchers, uh, Trinity Perspectives out of Australia does win-loss analysis, summarize thousands of interviews they've done over a dozen plus years. The nine primary reasons why you win deals based on these thousands of interviews with enterprise buyers and nine reasons why you lose. None of it had to do with product. It was all the experience. Well, the product is table stakes. That's what I think too. Mm-hmm. it's table stakes like can you solve their problem and just make it a seamless experience for them as much as possible well i think the idea of seamless experience i mean that's an interesting way to say it because i don't think most organizations approach the customer experience from the customer's perspective right there's a lot of lip service for buyer-centric or customer-centric selling and, and marketing but it's not. It's, hey, what, is, what works great for our sales organization? What's going to be the best sales process that they have one that we're going to implement? And then, hey, we're going to market it in whatever way we think we can get the most leads. Very rarely do people go, okay, what would a great customer experience from prospects through end customer? Mm-hmm. Then what are the touch points? And, and, and I think one of the other things that really confounds the opportunity to do that is misalignment of incentives. And that kind of brings us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. All of what we're saying, it makes tons of sense, but a lot of times marketers are like, hey, I'm being tasked to hit a number of whether they're MQLs or however you want. Like, I just need to get that number. I don't care if they're garbage or not, right? And the sellers are going, hey, I'm lucky to get to 17% because I've got George Washington as the lead name here. So I don't think he's probably even real, but somehow that got passed through, through to me. Like that's where I think how you create that alignment and then make that alignment actually in service to an end customer. It's, it sounds great. And very few organizations actually put their money where their mouth is. So why? Uh, oh, go ahead. I mean, Jen, you can answer that question. Why? I know this is kind of a butthead thing to say, but I feel it's weak leadership. In my opinion, it is mm-hmm. appeasing the dashboard instead of appeasing the buyer, right? If we look at everything that we've seen in terms of how customers want to be to buy and how they want to be sold to. I mean, I don't care if it's McKinsey or Gartner, whomever, everything is just saying, keep the seller so far away from me 
because we have incentivized people to be a nuisance to buyers. Right? When I shifted from a, um, the AE role to the evangelist role, it was because I realized that when I just shut up about our product, stopped talking about how great Challenger was, and instead shifted to saying, hey, it's really difficult to take someone who's never sold before and teach them how to sell. And here's all the problems that manifest when you're trying to do that. And I just never talked about our solution. Mm -hmm. And it was like my DMs were flooded with sales leaders who said, gosh, it feels like you were sitting in our team meeting. That was the exact conversation we have. And so I think over time, as buyers have changed, I just I wish more organizations said, if you do the right things early, if you help buyers learn, you will get that first opportunity to help them buy. But you got to serve the first need before you start shoving your solution and your product down their neck. I just think there's a fear of, I mean, we see it everywhere, right? Like there's a fear of change. If I stop talking yeah. about our solution, maybe people won't buy it. Maybe they will. <laughs> maybe they will, actually. Yeah, sorry, be surprised. Well, but it's, <laughs> that is such a huge issue, though, is how do we sort of address this pervasive culture in sales that it's all about the product? Don Dieter Schmelz, who runs the undergraduate selling program at Kansas State University, which is one of the bigger programs, one of the first programs. And she was on the show, my previous podcast last year. And we were talking, she was talking about her introduction to professional selling <laughs> class for freshman and sophomore, 18 years old, 19 years old, no exposure to sales. And she said, as she's so struck, she said, is that when they did role plays, all the, the students in the seller role defaulted to being really salesy. And it's like, they have no exposure to this. Where does this come from? But then we just seem to not try to discourage it. We see it's almost consciously or unconsciously seem to support it going forward, to your point, Jen. It's beyond just the sales culture. How does an 18-year-old know how to do that? Because they've grown up with pop culture and depictions of what sales oh, is. Yeah, I'm not talking about changing that. But about right, but my point is, we, if we're going to change the culture, we have to acknowledge that's the bedrock. I, mm -hmm. I actually think that one of the hardest things to drive this change is to fight the human instinct to want to see direct results. Right? Oh, good. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I will be the one who says I've got the gray hair. I started selling when I was making phone calls and on three by five cards, no caller ID, no email, and none of that stuff. But it was really cool because I knew if I made 10 phone calls it, with what I was doing, I would set up one, one meeting. Like, mm -hmm. I like, I don't know how it worked. I might make 30 and it was just the last three. That the human brain is wired for that, and we like that. So, for, to Jen, to your point, to tell somebody, I call it the Maverick in, uh, effect. The beginning of the movie Maverick, where he says, "I'm not going to win for the first hour playing poker. I'll let you you win." And he then litters all their towels and he cleans up. Right. Like to to tell not only a seller to do that, but then to tell the sales leader and the CRO, "Hey, we got to hire these people," and then just give them some time. That's a really scary thing. I agree with Jen. It's a lack of strong leadership, but I think that's what we're fighting if we really look at the change management process. So you see that if we gave people more time when we were onboarding them in order to... I, well, more time doing the right things. Right? And, that's, yeah. and that's where I think that training piece comes in. It's not more time to make more calls like, and Jen, you'll have strong opinions on this, but it's like, <laughs> not more time to give them AI to figure out how to like email the person 80 times as opposed to mm -hmm. just 40, because that'll double your rates. No, I was talking about more time to become acclimated to a sales environment. So we bring young people into this. I mean, we all joined, but at least I did. I was you know, 21, my first sales job. I didn't know anything about it, right? 
Yeah. But I, I was coming into the industry at a time when we didn't have this quote unquote 90 day pressure or whatever to, to onboard and get up to speed. And so we had managers that said, oh, everybody sort of develops at a different rate and we have a little patience. And yes, do we expect you to perform within a certain period of time? But it wasn't 90 days. Well, I mean, Bridget said it really well. Oh, cool. Sorry. So I was, I was saying Bridget said it really well where she's like, it's not the, the product case, it's the, or the technical case, it's the business case. Yeah. And especially if you're going into an industry that has any level of complexity, just going, hey, you're brand new, you've been here two weeks. Do you understand the industry now? Can you make a <laughs> compelling case to a, a CMO or a COO about why they should change? But that's kind of sometimes what it seems like we expect of people in, in sales. It is. It's so rare that you see anything that isn't that, right? It's wild right. if we sit down and think, when I started sales, I didn't know what B2B meant. Right? The most basic of terms I didn't understand. And then I get immersed in product training, and then I go off and make 100 calls of what am I going to talk about? The thing that I'm confident on, which is my product. And then we beat sellers over the head and say, why are you talking about the product? In my opinion, I think it is the single most destructive thing ever. Like I had a manager that was so hard on me, but it was the best experience because I was not allowed to bring a deal to review unless I could tell him what did that company sell, how did they sell it, mm -hmm. and who did they sell it to. If I couldn't give him that, he said, you don't know enough about the customer to be even in a deal process. And that rigor was one of the single best things that helped me as a salesperson. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get away with skimming by on that. And I just don't know that we apply that much rigor to the customer. We apply it to what does our product do? Yeah. How does our product do it? Why is it better than everybody else? Yeah, I had that with a manager. There was those questions plus, how does the customer make money? So that was his key question. So how do they make money? Yeah, it's pretty basic, but unknown by so many sellers. Right. It's like yeah. they're in ed tech. Like, I know they're in ed tech. Like, how do they make money? What do they have to do in order? And it's just you quickly realize the surface level understanding of the buyer, which explains why people talk about what they know. Yeah, we just sort of seem to be in this, it's like we recreate the wheel <laughs> every time there's a new cohort of sellers coming into sales, right? It is, and we don't seem to be getting better at it. I mean, it's, yeah, I read widely about management. I think one of the great models we're going to do in sales is actually oftentimes in sports management, not to sports cliches. But, you know, you look at sports that are really technically advanced in terms of the management techniques, like soccer is one. Everybody knows I'm a huge soccer fan. And here coaches say, well, you're investing a lot in bringing this new player onto the team. So what we do is we first help them become a better person before we start teaching them how to play soccer. Think about that. They got these hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars at stake. And they say, look, first thing I do is just help this person become a better person first. And I think about it in the context of sales, we're talking about culture change and so on, is, yeah, we can bring all these younger people and newer people into the sales. Whereas they were going to throw you on the phone. These days, how much time do they ever spend on a phone growing up, right? I mean, they're so used to asynchronous messaging and so on. And it's like, we know. I mean, the Gartner data talked about it. Other win-loss analysis data talks about it. It's still important to be able to form a relationship with someone virtually, right? Do we spend any time coaching people on that? Or we say, no, here's the product. Here's our process. And then we expect different results. Bridget. Andy. <laughs> Jump in here. You've yes. Quite observing. No, I because I'm. I agree. Yes, I agree. I I don't think it's though strictly a sales problem. Mm -hmm. So I think the pressure starts at the top, and there isn't an understanding 
at the sea level of what this looks like. And so there's this push downward to show the spreadsheet and there's just not an understanding there either. And I think there's an education that needs to happen there if we think anything systemically is really gonna change. Now, a message from Alego. If you want to save money on your sales tech stack, but don't want to sacrifice productivity, then you need a Lego. Lego's modern revenue enablement platform provides everything you need for effective onboarding, coaching, product launches, sales content management, and conversational intelligence. You'll be able to consolidate up to seven different tools and save on software spend while improving adoption. There may not be a more efficient way to do more with less. Lego's platform is unmatched in driving alignment across sales, marketing, and enablement teams. And will increase your ability to leverage peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, quickly source content and messaging insights from the field, and increase learning engagement and retention. So don't let too much tech hinder your team's performance. Demo Alego's revenue enablement platform today at alego.com forward slash demo. That's alego.com forward slash demo. And now a message from Closed. There's a cheat code to revenue growth. You hire Closed to simply ask your buyers what you could do better to win their business. If you talk to enough customers, you eliminate all the guesswork around what products to build, how to consistently outsell your top competitors, and even how to retain your most unhappy customers. The simple practice is like using a metal detector to find buried treasure in your business. For example, when Closed customer noticed a pattern in his Closed One buyer interviews, customers kept saying, we totally would have paid more for this product. So this revenue leader took action. He increased prices by 30%. And you know what? They didn't even see a drop in their win rate. That's an immediate increase of 30% in your revenue. So improve your win rates, unearth win-back opportunities, and discover other revenue hidden in your business with direct, candid feedback from your buyers. Here's how Closed can help you get started. Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So visit winlosstoolkit.com today. Bridget, do you, so, what do you see like with peer groups like startups other startups, like how do the good sales organizations or revenue organizations form? Like you're talking about like right at the very beginning, like are there things that are done right or wrong? Like it's one thing to be in a very established sales culture and you're trying to like move a you know, ship, right? Those, that, those move slow, but what about like have those more agile, nimble, right at the beginning? Is, is there hope there, I guess, is the question I'm asking. I, I think maybe why I gravitate to startups is because I think there is more flexibility there. And yeah. oftentimes the CEOs, they don't know what they're doing and they know they don't know what they're doing. And so yeah. they're willing to let me do it my way. Are you sensing a control freak speaking <laughs> right now? Okay. So, so there's a little bit more flexibility there and a little bit more, uh, 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 no, we're not doing it that way. And no, we're going to take our time. So there probably is, to your point, 
you do have a little bit more flexibility to do it a certain way. And you're not trying to do it at scale because it's a lot easier to do it when I can have a smaller team that maybe I can't be, I, I can never be on everybody's calls, but I can listen to Gong. I can, they can be on some of my calls and they can ob- observe how it's done. So I probably have it easier because I'm not trying to do it at scale. I think doing it at scale, then it just gets more challenging. What I hope is though, it's like a, it's like a small group classroom and it's very personalized. And I hope that then these sellers are going to go out and go to other places and then bring that with them. Because as you said, you can't put somebody in a one day or a three day training and expect it to stick. It doesn't. And the thing about so early on at Xerox, which had in the day, this was like a hundred years ago, they well, an not, amazing not, sales not, program. No, it wasn't a hundred. Okay. 80, I exaggerated. 80, maybe 80, it maybe. It wasn't a hundred, but it <laughs> yeah. was up there. Okay. The, the what they said about and, and we had tons of we had months of training before we could talk to anybody. Mm-hmm on not just the product, there was some on the product, but it's the context and the customer and the environment. And, but they said the effectiveness when they studied it, the reason it was so effective is because when you went back, it was continually reinforced. It was good. And my, Andy, I've told the story before, it was at Xerox, my first potential deal. My first, like I'm the bright Scrubbed sales rep. It was Ford Aerospace, Lou Espinoza. I brought him the proposal and we had developed this relationship. And he said, that looks good, Bridget. Let me show you the, the proposal that I got from IBM. And I understood his budget and what he was trying to accomplish and the strengths, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at the IBM proposal and I said, if I were you, I would buy IBM. I would buy that one. Okay. He's like, okay, great. And he did. And I went back to the office and I told my manager, this is what happened. And this is why I told him that. And he said, that was the right thing to do. Get out of my office because you're, you still have the same quota. Your quota has <laughs> you don't get moral, There are no moral credit points for that. Yes. You know, yeah, that was the right thing to do because that's our ethos is you, you really, they became, Ford Aerospace became my number one customer. Because any time at Ford, when there was anything, even remotely, that I could respond to, he would say, call Bridget Gleason. She'll be honest. She'll be, they were my biggest customer by far. And so it started to your point about developing relationships. I was taught very early how to do it at scale, and there was a lot of reinforcement. So I guess I try to bring that to the teams and hope that they will then go and provide that example somewhere else. It's not like, it's not going to scale in a big way in my lifetime. But again, I think I've got the advantage that I've got smaller teams to work with. So I have it easier when the hot mess and the dumpster fire is small. (laughs) They're easier to contain like the fire extinguisher as opposed to needing like a squad. (laughs) Just a little... Well, it's interesting about your story, though, is you knew why you were winning the business there. And yeah. there's data that came out of the folks that closed or sponsor of this program. And 
that this study found that when sellers enter their reason for losing a deal into the CRM, they're only right 15% of the time. They went to a study, they looked at the reasons given to sellers, they went and talked to the buyers, compared the answers. So it's like I, salespeople. Yeah, go ahead. I think the other thing about that is I was very clear. I knew why I told Lou Espinoza to go with IBM. I knew, and it was unambiguous, and there was no, there was no hesitation. Well, there was a little hesitation to tell him that. And it's because I, that's how I would want to be treated on the other side, mm -hmm. is I would want that person to be an honest broker right. and tell me because they knew more. And that's what I would want. And I thought I, and we learned that is I want someone to treat me and tell me the way that I want to be treated. And so for me, it was very clear that I really didn't have a choice that if I'm always going to try to do right by the customer, then I have to be that honest yeah. broker and really try to see it from their perspective, regardless if I've got to go find a replacement for that deal that I just lost. Right. Raise an interesting question because there's a sort of body of quote unquote thought leaders or whatever on LinkedIn that say relationships. Nah, buyers don't have time for relationships. They don't want relationships. And I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's gotten out of style. In fact, I think the data shows that's why people are buying from you. I mean, I think that's the one, the number one misconception about Challenger. We all know like Challenger was picked as the title because it was provocative, right? And yeah, when we yeah. said like, relationship yeah. builders lose, right? It wasn't that building relationship is a losing strategy. It's just, I think far too many sellers, myself included, because that was my profile before I learned about Challenger, interpret, I have to build a relationship to win a deal. The thing that I heard that I, that really resonated with me is a relationship is an outcome of doing the right things with mm -hmm. the buyer. Right? It's right. not the entry point. It is something you earn through doing the things that Bridget described. And I, I think if we taught that mindset, Bridget, that you just walk people through and we gave hundreds of examples of when you play the long game, it actually ends up being the short game and you win more. I think teaching the mindset is so much more important than teaching discovery and negotiation and 100%. all these tiny yeah. skills, right? Because everything we do in pursuit of executing those skills should be guided by the mindset. Oh, I agree. That's sort of my beliefs is yeah. that, yeah, we're pretty adept at training humans how to be sellers, but we're really lousy at training sellers how to be human. <laughs> and right, and right. this is, we don't even make an effort in most cases, right? And yet... Again, there's sorry with Gartner and they even talked about the challenger sale, but so on is the single biggest individual deciding factor in the customer's decision making is their experience with you as a seller. Because the products are table stakes, to Bridget's point. A good product at a decent price, that's table stakes. And if everything well, else is if everything else is equal, what makes the difference? It's you. Isn't relationship another way of saying experience? Right. I mean, you're kind of talking about the same Part thing. It, yeah. I mean, I, you know that I'm very biased towards the relationship sale. <laughs> I wrote a book, some books on it. But the idea that I, I think the biggest mistake, and I know some of the LinkedIn thought leaders that you speak of, I, I think the mistake that gets made a lot is the difference between relationship and friendship. Like a lot of people right. hear, oh, I've got to be my 
my buyer's best friend. And we go back to this old school idea. I'm going to take him out for a round of golf and we're going to have dinner together. Finally, there's still some sales roles where that level of relationship oh, sure. slash friendship is critical. And that is actually a big piece of it. But for most of us, it's not that we have to be somebody's best friend, but they have to trust us, right? So again, they've experienced, and Bridget, you said it so well, it's like they that buyer knew that you were gonna tell him the truth in that moment, not be like, oh, don't pay attention to that part of the, you're like, yep, this is a better deal for you. I can see why you're gonna do it. Cause that person then knows you're gonna tell the truth the next time. Mm-hmm. If what you say is, hey, you should buy from me and here's why. I mean, I remember I got my start, not so glamorous, this was not Ford Aerostar. This was selling knives in people's kitchens. Cutco knives. Cutco. I love Cutco. I should go get my collection. <laughs> yeah, I'm, way, I'm right here. Yeah. If, if you need any more, I still have my contract. I still sell <laughs> here and there. They're amazing. Coming at you. Right? Good. By the yeah. way, that's a case where the, the product does sell. So <laughs> we don't get to cut pennies that much on our sales demos. But I, I, I through circumstance or fortune, my manager kind of taught me the right way, kind of this idea of always... And it was transactional. We weren't, I wasn't becoming best friends with people, but I always walked in going, take care of the customer. My, my close ratio was 91%. And I still remember that because it was really high. That's amazing. But, yeah. but sometimes it was just like one knife or like the pizza cutter. Okay. Like, You're expensive. I always, they oh. are. But I've the, had my set now since 1997, the so they're cheap. I've had mine longer. I've had mine longer than that. I think. Like, I have, I, and I love my Ketco knives. Like I've got a lot of them. My sister sells them. Now commercial. Everybody message me. I will sell them to you and get you a deal. They are fantastic. They are fantastic. But, but the sales point I'm making and the closing <laughs> point is was very much like I knew personally in my like like I didn't sell stuff to somebody they didn't need because right. and I actually remember this husband and I forget his name but looked at me and he goes, "Are these really worth it?" And I could look at him and say, yeah, like I've met people who've had these since 1951. That was my record. I met a woman in 1950. Yes. And he's like, cool. And wrote me a big check. But that's. Bridget, wasn't that when you were 50 years old in 1951? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was negative 50 years old in 1951. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Negative. I just color my hair so you don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. But, but yeah, right. it's, it's a trust piece. And imagine a sales onboarding process. I think an ideal one would be like our number one job from start to finish is to build trust with our customers. I like, not that I, I talk about it a lot, I like that the, the owner of SAS, S-A-S, not S-A-S, in our sales kickoff was like, we are in the business of trust. And you're like, oh, cool. That is a message I can get behind. That is not, I think, something that you hear from every sales organization and sales leader. So unfortunately not, no. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're sort of reached the end of time, but well, not time in that sense, but the end of the, our time here together. <laughs> this is how I want to spend before the apocalypse. Is gone we're we're really reached the end of days. So yeah, very apocalyptic here. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Jen, Bridget. I have a nickname for Bridget. Her nickname is Captain Fantastic. She was. I mean, well, it's obvious why. Obvious it's why a, now, after she's been on it. the show. And Fish, thank you. I look forward to having you guys come back at any time because we've got lots of good conversation to have. So thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guests, Jen Allen Knuth, Bridget Gleason, and David J.P. Fisher 
for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. That's Win Rate Wednesday. Each week on Wednesday, you receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to accelerate your win rates. So again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.